Hello, friends. Welcome to the Focus to Evolve podcast, where we uncover modalities, habits, and technologies that enable people, teams, and organizations to break the unhealthy trance of busyness and evolve into a calm, deliberate, and healthy way of accomplishing far more in less time. Greetings, fellow evolving humans. Welcome to another episode of the Focus to Evolve podcast. I'm your host, Jason Hinkle. And today I have a a very special guest, a special person in my life, someone who has helped me personally, who's helped my family, and uh, who is helping loads of young adults uh, transition into um, high self-reliance, helping young adults becoming the kings, the queens, the magicians, the lovers, the warriors that they can be as they enter into mature adulthood. His name is Dennis Maroda. He is a partner here at Focus to Evolve, taking on the education markets, the young adults markets, and he is the CEO and founder of an organization called Building Men. He's going to tell you a little bit about that, but I wanted to hand the mic over to him for him to say hello. Dennis, say hello to the world, and please tell us a little bit about yourself and building men and how it relates to focus to evolve and what we're going to go do in the world. What is up, Jason? What is up, evolving humans? I uh, really enjoy that tagline. That has to be your thing moving forward. You know, everybody has their little thing when they do a podcast. So as you're doing it, coming up with that is tremendous. It's great to be here. And I'm really, uh, one, happy to have connected with you. It's, It's about a year and a half now since you and I have connected, and we're speaking at least once a week now for the last year and a half. A lot of it was focused around you know, family dynamics and things, which I'm sure we'll get into, uh, but you've become a really good friend to me. We've, we've seen each other in person a couple times now as well, and so one, I would just want to congratulate you on this new adventure, and then two, uh, just echo that sentiment. You are an important person in my life as well. So, so thank you, man. I, I really appreciate it. Uh, it. It really is an honor to know you. The work you're doing, you know, it focused to evolve. Um, a lot of folks have been through this training, whether it be in-person trainings, coachings, the academies, whatever. Um, and, and my idea is, hey, I want to be doing something that actually has an impact on the 500-year plan. <laughs> and and so uh, when you kind of came into the uh, into the realm, I thought, whoa, you know, that matches with something that a lot of people have asked me in the early days of Focus to Evolve. You know, we've, we've been coaching and training since 2015, and I, my main focus has been kind of the busy corporate warrior, because that's what I was. That's, that's the path that my life had taken. And a lot of the people in the trainings would come up to me and say, hey, do you have anything for students or you know, my son and my daughter's just struggling. They just can't, they can't keep themselves organized and they don't, you know, all these things that we're all pretty familiar with. I mean, I have two kids, um, 17 and 11 year old, and I, I already, I see it and I coach this stuff and I'm still like, man, well, the way that I talk to a, a, a corporate warrior, well, they're not really hearing that. <laughs> and believe me, I'm trying. Uh, I'll say the words, but it's just going in one ear and out the other because they're just not relating to the way I say it. Uh, the way that I've geared the messages of being highly effective in healthy ways. Uh, and then you come along and I'm like, wait a minute, this could be pretty cool. We take the brain-based modalities of focus to evolve and we get somebody with extensive experience with young adults and, and school-aged you know, people. And that's you. The, the unicorn came along in my life. And so I dangled a carrot and said, hey, you want to come and play? <laughs> and, and here you are. So now we're kind of formalizing this and going to take this to a lot of 
children and a lot of young adults for that 500 year plan because we're going to you're going to be targeting the generations ahead. I'm I'm kind of helping where we are. You're going to be taking on that big load. So what do you think about that? What do you say? Yeah, and and I appreciate you saying that. It's funny that you mentioned the whole thing with your own children, Jason. We and any parents that are listening right now, Think about sports and you have, you know, you're telling your kid, you know, put your your hands here on the baseball bat or this is how you feel the ground ball and they're not listening. But then the other coach comes along and tells them the exact same thing and all of a sudden it clicks. Oh, Coach Billy told me to do this. And you're like, wait a second. I've been telling you this for the last three years. So there is something to that, them hearing it from another voice. And the the journey with, you know, how we got connected, it was through building men, but my journey was as an educator. And I went to school in South Jersey, was a baseball player. And uh, so that was really, really important to me, the idea of community, the idea of, of uh, competition, athletic participation. So in my major in education, I also did a coordinate major in sociology. And part of that sociology major was doing an internship. And I did this internship at a halfway home for at-risk boys. It was called Together Incorporated. And I just did it because I needed an internship. Lo and behold, this internship became uh, a catalyst that really changed the whole trajectory of my life. So I'm doing this internship, right? And it was all boys there. They were there because of the court system. So they did something wrong and got arrested for it. Or they were the victims of physical or sexual abuse and or neglect. So these were kids that were coming some, from some really challenging, precarious backgrounds. And so in this internship, I needed to be with these boys and uh, observe group and individual counseling sessions. And I was learning a lot about how do you communicate with kids. And these were at-risk kids. And I'm learning how do you... Uh, get the most out of them? How do you communicate with them in a way that they feel safe, but also you can stretch them beyond what they thought they were previously, what was previously possible? So I'm doing that for a couple months, and then I get hired as a van driver, Jason. And so now I'm picking these kids up after school in some tough areas in South Jersey and driving them back to this place, and they would be there from about 3 o'clock until about 10 o'clock, and then I would drive them home. And it's funny what happened was, and if anybody has kids of their own, you know you learn a lot about your kids on those drives. You know, when when they don't realize that you're listening to what's going on. So what started to happen was these kids started to open up and talk about things that they weren't talking about to clinically trained therapists and social workers. And now I'm this 21-year-old college baseball player who really doesn't know what he's doing, and these kids are opening up. And then it turned into we had our own little community driving home where I was helping these kids understand what it meant to be a man in society as I was going on that journey myself. So I, I tucked it away and I thought, I'm going to do something with this one day. So fast forward, I get a job as a teacher, go back quickly to get my master's degree in educational leadership. And I should mention that my third day teaching in central New Jersey was September 11th of 2001. Right away, I was, I was thrown into this situation, not really understanding the dynamics of leading my own classroom. And but also recognizing that these kids need to feel safe. I mean, we just had one of the most tragic events in the history of our country. And this is when I'm 22 years old leading a classroom for the first time. So I get my master's degree in, in educational leadership, and I started as an assistant principal, Jason, in 2005. And when I started right away, I recognized all the problems I was dealing with in school with the boys. They were coming to school late or not coming at all, they were getting into fights, getting tossed out of class for being disrespectful, things that we likely did when we were 7th and 8th grade boys. But now I'm a school leader trying to understand, well, what do I do here? How do I help these kids that are going through something really challenging? 
They were the, the, they were getting failing grades. They were getting classified into special services or special education at an alarming rate when compared to the girls in the school. So again, this is my first year as an administrator, and I said, I have to do something about this. I need to do something to help these boys connect, understand, understand how to learn. And so I decided to start a, a boy social group called Building Men. And so I started it in October of 2005. Right away, almost every single boy in the school joined this program. And we talked about what it meant to be a man in society. And initially, Jason, their thoughts about being a man were you needed to be the best athlete, bigger, faster, stronger, six-pack. You have to bench 315 pounds. You have to be able to dunk, throw a basketball, or throw a football further than everyone else. It was like this athletic success and then it was the number of girls that you slept with or how hot were the girls you were sleeping with or um, just this accumulation of of sexual partners so it was this idea of sexual conquest and then it was you have to make the most money or, or accumulate the most stuff so it was like you know financial conquest as well and what we talked about was if you're basing your masculinity around being the best athlete, being with the most females, and or you know getting the most stuff, the sneakers, the car, the house, what, what have you, and those things are taken away from you, where are you then? So what I recognize after one year, and then I'll turn it back over to you, was one year of these kids joining this building men group, understanding what it meant to be a part of a community, to be accountable, to understand the, the importance of, of curiosity, of resiliency, of, of self-discipline. Our suspension rate in one year dropped 400% with the boys that were in the group, and their grades raised an average of a half of a letter grade per boy that was in the group. So now we have some some hard data around the importance of these kids coming together and, and meeting once a week, talking about it, what it meant to be a man, and we started to base our identity, our our identity of, of being masculine men around service to other people, which is another reason why you and I have connected uh, so cohesively was because our, our missions to help other people become the best versions of themselves. We'll be right back after this brief message. Do you love news about LinkedIn, Indeed, Google, and just about every other recruitment tech company out there? Hell Yeah. I'm Chad. I'm Cheese. We're the Chad and Cheese Podcast. All the latest recruiting news and insights are on our show. Dripping in snark and attitude. Subscribe today wherever you listen to your podcasts. We, we out. Welcome back to the Focus to Evolve Podcast. I mean, I know your work is profound because I, I saw it with my own eyes with my son when you helped him through a really tough time that the Papa Bear couldn't help with. The, the tribe member, one of the other elders or men in the tribe, that, that, that was you. You were, the, you were the wise uncle that was needed. And um, you had mentioned something there in that. Thank you for sharing all that, by the way. You had mentioned that the boys all just signed up. Like there's an innate knowing like this is almost ancestral. It's, in a, it's almost in our genetic coding when you sense truth. Because, you know, if you would have told me, hey, Jay, I'm going to start this boys group. And I'd be like, you know, teenagers are not going to sign up for that. Teenage guys are just going to look at you like you're a moron. Boy, would I have been wrong? Because you said everyone signed up. You didn't really have to do much. Why is that? It's a great question. And one of the reasons was, so I was a 28-year-old assistant principal, 27, 28 years old. So I did have a little street cred to me at that time. So I wasn't that far removed from how old the boys were. 
Um, the other thing, and this should have been part of my intro there. So there was a really great group that a female guidance counselor had during that time, and it was called Girls Speak Out. And so this group was helping the young females in the school, the, the adolescent females, understand what it meant to be a female in society. So there was a lot about societal pressures. There was a lot about body image. There was a lot about equality, the glass ceiling, things like that. So this guidance council ran a girls group, and most of the girls participated in some capacity. So once I said I was starting the boys group, the boys were like waving the masculine flag, like, you know what? The girls have their group. We're going to have our group now. So they all joined up as like, we're going to come together as like, and I do agree with you. If it was, if there was not that synonymous girls group happening at the same time, it would have been a lot more challenging for me to start this group up. I think it would have it would have gone through some iterations of growing pains. But because there was already an established girls group, the boys were like, we're going to go. But initially they thought, we're going to sit around in smoking jackets, drinking whiskey, you know, wearing a, a robe, talking, you know, looking at Playboys. And I'm like, all right, slow your rolls, guys. Like, we're going to really get down into what it means to be a man. So I I think that's where the the whole idea came from. But once they started to recognize, and I think this contributed to the the stats that I mentioned before, once they recognized like they were a part of this community, they felt a this compelling idea to not let down the other members of the tribe. So as they're walking down the hallway, like before, if they were going to do some stupid stuff and smack someone in the head as they're walking past the water fountain or push someone into a locker or yell something to the teacher, now they're looking at each other like, you know what? We don't do that. That's not the stuff that we do anymore. That might have been when we were in seventh grade, but now we don't do those things because we're a part of this building men group. I'm I'm listening to that and I can't help but put my own framing on it because that's what us humans do. The, this idea, I've heard you say the word community probably five times already. So it's it's obviously one of the underlying pillars. And when I'm, you know, when I'm doing my stuff with the corporate clients, the importance of community and tribe in this more evolved way of working and being is so important. And I can imagine it's even exponentially more important with the teenage to young 20s group because they're becoming somebody. They're pushing their parents away. They're going to the tribe. They're finding their tribe. So it's more than just, you know, it's in corporate setting, it's it's easier to not have to go against the grain of culture. And in my context, it's culture of busyness. It's culture of hurry. It's culture of wearing that badge of honor of, oh, I worked all night again and I'm so tired, but give me another cup of coffee. Like most companies don't understand how much profit that's causing them, even though all the bosses are like, hey, I'm proud of that guy. That's awesome. He's, he's working himself to literally death. Um, but that's uh, the culture is so important to be a healthier culture. And that's one of the things we get into in my trainings. But tell me a little bit about culture and the importance of it with, you know, the the audience you're working with, young adults. So one thing that I've recognized about kids, Jason, is this idea of a looking glass self. And as adults, we fall into this trap as well. But kids don't see the the person that's looking back at them in the mirror. That's not who they see. Who they see is the person they think their peers see of them. So it's not even what they think of themselves. It's what they think their peers think of them. So that's one of the first things that we we need to recognize when we're dealing with kids in middle school and in high school, even into their early college years, is identity is such a huge piece of the puzzle. They're really trying to figure out who they are, where they fit in. 
And then you throw in all the pressures that they're they're seeing in society on social media on a regular basis. And we can get into a whole thing about how that is rewiring kids' brains. I'm sure that'll be a big topic of conversation. But so it's this idea of this looking glass self. But there's also one thing that I that I know to be true, capital T truth is children need to be known. And not just not just known like, oh yeah, these this is my class roster. So if you're listening to this and you work with, with young men and women in any capacity, not just know them, but know something about them. I do a workshop with teachers and I have them do this activity and I say, okay, think about your class roster from last year. Write down 25 kids from your class roster from last year. And as an educator, you should be able to, to remember 25 kids that you're teaching. Then I say, write down something that you know about that kid, whatever it is. Something that you know, not just they were tall or they wore glasses, like something that you know from a conversation with them. And then the third column, I say, write down that you know that they know this about you, like that that you're confident that the kid knows that you know this about them. So is that something that if you can't say that as an educator, you have a lot of work to do in this area. When you have a group of people together, you have an opportunity to create community. And community is not created just because you're all following the same schedule that Mr. So-and-so printed out for you in the beginning of the year. It's done intentionally every single interaction that you're having. So my big takeaway from today is the importance of community. It's the importance of recognizing that when you have a group of people together, you have an opportunity to create that family feel. And we've all had that feel either in our own family dynamics, with groups that we've uh, interacted with, with sports teams. Some of them just come together and you have this feeling. Learning can happen so much deeper and on a, on a really more profound level when kids feel connected to a su supportive community and those social interactions are happening in a positive and productive way. As I listen to you, it's so clear that this is a human thing. This is not a student thing or a corporate warrior thing or in any, it's a human thing. I mean, we are a communal species. It's why we are apex in the world. You know, as soon as we started getting together and making agricultural society, that's when boom, you know, that's when civilization started the way we know of it today. And all of a sudden we have iPhones and Neuralink. <laughs> that's because of community, literally. Uh, before community, we were surviving. And I mean surviving, like the saber-toothed tiger fighting off surviving. So uh, the underpinning importance of community, I don't think it can be overstated. Uh, and let me ask you a, a question. Anxiety. Let's even throw in depression. You know, there's there's no shortage of media around what our young adults are going through right now. And, and by the way, that I'm seeing a parallel in the corporate world too. Non-specific general anxiety is just overrunning most organizations, to be honest. And it's, there's a lot of reasons for that. So how does how do those emotions play into community, and how does community done well help with that? It's creating that safe landing space for for kids especially. Uh, so I run a, an online group for young men. Your son is a part of this group. It's called The Foundation, and we meet every two weeks. And what I'm doing is really intentionally trying to establish this community. And some of the kids that are in this group are coming from some pretty challenging backgrounds of their own. And so yesterday we had a meeting, and I put this quote up on the screen, and it was, pain shared is pain divided. Success shared is success multiplied. And I had the boys think about that quote and then go into breakout rooms and discuss it. And your son was one of the kids who came back out and really shared what that meant to him. But 
I think it's normalizing that, listen, as an adolescent, we're all going through those challenging things. Even as adults, whenever you have a group of people together, like we're all, we're all conscious of, of our finances, of what's going on in our, in our relationships, our body image, like things that are just what's going on in the world. These things are constantly creeping in. So with, with adolescents, I like to normalize. You're not the only one who's feeling like this. So if kids feel like they are not on an, on an island out there on an iceberg somewhere that there are other kids going through something similar again that community feel whenever you can normalize situations that they're going through and it could be connecting them to other peers their age through your own situation or through stories you know telling stories about things that have happened that you have seen that makes them understand i am not alone so i think that that that's how we we begin to combat those ideas of anxiety and depression with kids makes all the sense in the world and again seemingly uh, cut and pasteable wisdom from you there into all realms of life, of the ages, the phases we go through, and the learning journeys that we have. So thanks so much for sharing the wisdom. Today uh, with you, Dennis, was really, uh, I just wanted the audience to be able to say hello to you, to introduce you to them. And over the months and years to come, uh, you'll be on the show quite regularly. Uh, and, and in the future, uh, today was more of an intro. So thank you for taking the time to do that. Um, in the future, just so the audience knows, uh, we are going to get quite practical. We're going to drop some tips, tricks, modalities, all the ways that you can be handling this onslaught of life. And sometimes it feels rough. Sometimes it's amazing. It's the whole piano that you want. You don't want to just keep hitting those soprano notes. You want the baritones too and everything in between. And handling that maturely, whether you're a, a you know a high-producing corporate warrior or an independent uh, entrepreneur or a student of any kind. And hopefully we all realize we are all just students and there's no way we're ever going to learn it all. But the important part is to identify as a learner. And that can rarely leave you in a bad place. It's far more important to identify as being curious than being the one who's right all the time. It's so much more relaxing and you learn all the time and the ego stays way out of it because you're just curious. You're a student. And so, Dennis, I think that uh, over, you know, with every one of your visits and over the time of this podcast, people will be able to take away things that are immediately applicable, uh, very impactful in their life, very practical to real world scenarios. And uh, with that, I'm going to put my little soapbox away and ask you, do you have any final parting words before we head up? Always take those opportunities to invest in other people. Don't miss those chances when they come up. It could be a throwaway moment for you. It could be a passing conversation for you, but to the ears, the eyes, the heart, the soul, especially of a, a, a kid in middle school and in high school, those moments that you spend investing in other people, the ripple effect that that creates, it, it, you may have no idea the trajectory of that one conversation you have investing in another human being. Glorious finishing words. And it got us right back to the 500-year plan. That one conversation may actually ripple to 500 years of impact. Thanks for that, man. I appreciate you. Thank you, my man. I appreciate being here. 
This has been a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to our producing director, Bridget Coyne, and audio engineer, Ian Douglas. I'm your host, Jason Henkel, thanking you for tuning in today and inviting you to like and subscribe to this podcast. Also, if you think this may help others in your personal or professional network, please share today's episode. Until next time, I wish you a calm, deliberate, and authentic week ahead. How much do you understand the future of finance? I'm Jim Roos, a top 10 banking influencer and host of the podcast Banking Transformed, where we dive deeply into the rapidly evolving world of banking and financial technology. Join me as I interview industry experts, thought leaders, and innovators as they unravel the latest banking trends, disruptions, and game-changing technologies reshaping the world of finance. Redefine your understanding of the banking ecosystem. Subscribe now to Banking Transformed, available wherever you get your podcasts and now available on YouTube.